Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. Now, from Miletus, he, Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day, that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, among your own selves, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them, Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all, because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, happy Father's Day, if that's okay to say. Um, uh, I'm a dad several times over. I think every dad has their own way of showing off his, his manhood and showing off for the kids is sort of machismo, machismo if you want to call it that. Uh, one way I, I've done that, and I, I've said this before, I, I have this almost competitive relationship with Google Maps. I use it, but I kind of hate it. And while I appreciate that Google Maps can take me past and around construction zones and the major backups and everything else, Uh, I would generally prefer to take a slightly more scenic route that adds 15 minutes to my trip than take all highways and pay tolls just to shave off a minute or two. So I will sometimes take a turn just to defy the system and see what it does and force it to recalculate, you know. Uh, But then Google Maps has a way of fighting back. Um, 
Sometimes Google Maps will, will show me an alternate route and it will tell me that going this way will only add a few minutes to the trip. And I'm like, oh, well, that's good. You know, and maybe it's more scenic. It's a more interesting way to go. And I'll make that turn only for Maps to immediately start turning me around again to go back the way I was just going. <laughs> and, and it's not until you start recognizing things that you realize this was just an elaborate U-turn. And it's like, ah, Google Maps strikes again. And then, just to be extra creepy, if you haven't turned off this thing, Google will send you a monthly report of where you've been, including all the convoluted paths that it took you on, you know? Well, last week, we've been following Paul, but <laughs> Paul made something of a convoluted trip from Troas to Miletus, uh, we saw last week, and it's the sort of route that Google Maps would certainly protest against. Um, he's been bouncing from island to island, port to port, including a strange little uh, sidetrack he took over the mountains by foot. And also, we, we talked a, a bit about this, uh, he skipped the biggest and most obvious port of call at Ephesus. But we saw by the end that Paul had his reasons for this. He's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. Uh, so he takes this convoluted route, uh, first over the mountains, because he wanted to clear his head, I think, and get some quiet time to pray. And then second, he goes around Ephesus to avoid any long-winded goodbyes. So Paul knows that danger lies ahead at Jerusalem, and yet the Holy Spirit, he says, is compelling him to go. And so Ephesus represents, in a way, temptation for Paul. Uh, because if Paul sets foot in Ephesus, he could easily get right back into the groove and get lost in the day-to-day -day ministry and get so deeply involved in the daily emergencies of pastoral work that he might never leave. He might never get to Jerusalem, and I think he knows that. And so instead he goes to Miletus, which is, again, about 40 miles south of Ephesus. But I think he feels like it would be rude to just disappear without any final words. And so he calls this <coughs> session meeting and summons these Ephesian elders to an impromptu retreat in Miletus, which is essentially like a state away, right? Now, we just read Paul's entire speech. I decided to do that for the sake of continuity. We're going to be focusing mostly on the second half. But the first half, I think, is helpful because it, it sort of sets the tone of the meeting, right? Uh, John Stott, in his commentary on Acts, makes the very interesting observation that I wouldn't have thought of. But he says, this is the only speech in the entire book of Acts that is addressed exclusively to Christians. Every other speech is given in front of large crowds of mostly pagans or in front of government officials. Uh, they usually come in the form of evangelistic sermons or legal defenses or usually a combination of the two. Uh, but this speech is designed entirely to encourage believers, to give church leaders guidance. And they're going to need this guidance, and they need it now because Paul's not going to be here later to give it to them. And so that was the essence of the first half of the speech we covered last week. That, that was all about Paul sort of reminiscing about his time in Ephesus and then looking forward to his sufferings. And Paul sure sounds like he expects the next step of his ministry to be the death of him. He's very clear that he never expects to see these guys again. And that's got to be enough to get their attention. Uh, normal elders might be unhappy with Paul for dragging them several days' journey south just to say goodbye, but... I think now they realize sort of the gravity of the situation and, and why Paul did what he did. So Paul says he's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem to face this thing. And Luke says his intention is to get there in time for Pentecost, which is a Jewish holiday, but it's also a day obviously of great significance to the Christian church because it's sort of the birthday of the church. 
when all this crazy story of Acts got started in earnest, when the Holy Spirit descended that day, and things have been kind of a wild ride since then. But I don't think Paul is aiming to get back purely to celebrate a festival. Uh, This is not a regular pilgrimage for Paul. He's not an advocate, really, typically, for keeping all the old holy days. He's been on the road, you have to remember, for three years now. Uh, on this missions trip, and he's never raced back to Jerusalem for Pentecost before, so this is not Paul advocating annual pilgrimages. But it sounds like, in his mind anyway, uh, this Jewish festival and the birthday of the church all seem to align with something big that's going to be happening to he, Paul, personally this year. Uh, A new chapter will be written at Jerusalem this year. Chapter 21, in fact. which we'll look at next time. But uh, Paul, so he spends the first half of this meeting talking about himself. He talks about the past, his, his track record in Ephesus, and he talks about his future, this imprisonment and suffering that's going to start in Jerusalem. But that's not a whole lot to go on, really, right? Uh, meaning, if, if Paul only has one last chance to talk to these guys, and he stops short after defending his record, <laughs> that would be kind of a strange meeting, I think. Um, and, and don't get me wrong, I mean, look, Paul often makes a practice of defending his record. He, he seems to do that a lot, but that doesn't tell these guys what they should do next, you know? Uh, being reminded of how faithful Paul's ministry was doesn't necessarily help me, you know? And, and I struggled with that a little bit in Bible study this past week as we try to do application stuff and I'm thinking like how do you apply Paul's faithful ministry in the past to us now you know and I thought to myself I'm reading this and thinking like like if Pastor Stone came back right and we gave him the pulpit and he used the opportunity and came up here and basically said well I did the best I could with you people see ya and just like left right (laughs) that would kind of feel anticlimactic wouldn't it Uh, you would kind of expect somewhere along the line that he would give you some sort of exhortation, like here's what I hope you will do going forward in my absence, right? That kind of thing. So likewise, some parting instructions from Paul would be helpful at this point. Everyone in the room is emotional now. You know, he's got all these tearful eyes looking at him. He just told him, I'm never going to see you guys again. They could use some guidance, and Paul realizes that. And verse 28 is sort of where he switches gears. He's, he's giving something of a, a last will and testament here. He's sort of, look, he's like the patriarch of Ephesus, right? He's the founding father, and he's leaving for good. Uh, the elders of Ephesus all have roughly the same question going through their minds. What are we going to do now? If you're not coming back, Paul, and we're losing our fearless leader, then how can we go on at this point? What do we do? And what Paul will be doing is giving the Ephesian church a framework of ministry. It's something of a to-do list for church leaders. This is what you guys need to do once the rubber hits the road and life hits you full force. Basically, he's telling them what any church needs to do to succeed in ministry, with some of his personal twist built in. So this is obviously pertinent even for today for LVPC and for our session. It's well-timed for our session meeting this week. Uh, This is basically the first ever session minutes recorded in history, only much more interesting to read than anything we put together. Now, one preliminary thing worth noticing here about this meeting is Paul doesn't, he's not addressing like a special archbishop of Ephesus, is he? Throughout this passage, he, he, 
these guys are referred to as elders in verse 17. It is implied that they are pastors because he talks about the, uh, the congregation as a flock and he calls them overseers, which is where we get the word for bishop. But these terms in the New Testament, elder, pastor, overseer, are all interchangeable in the New Testament. And this passage makes that kind of obvious. The churches are not meant to be a one-man show. Uh, biblical church government is government by a plurality of elders, which is all to say that Paul's words here are addressed to the session of the First Presbyterian Church of Ephesus. <laughs> and it will be their duty to carry out his commands and to be a blessing to the flock. So elders should pay special attention today, fellows. <clears throat> Uh, because this is Paul's treatise on, on how elders need to function. It's the how-to guide for shepherding the flock, and it's the duty of all elders, and a heavy duty it is. So again, Paul begins his exhortation with a basic job description. Reverend Green has been uh, trying to beat into my head the importance of job descriptions and expectations, so I'm, I'm trying to learn here in the process, right? Verse 28, Paul says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I'm going to stop there for just a second already uh, to observe a couple things right off the bat. And the first thing I, I want you to notice, just in passing anyway, is the Trinitarian force of that verse. He says, the Holy Spirit does this thing for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So, all the persons of the Trinity make an appearance in this verse, and no matter how you arrange it, the references are kind of confusing, because it's like, wait, who obtained with whose blood? Because the Father didn't shed blood, and neither did the Holy Spirit, right? The passage only makes sense if Paul is referring to Jesus as God, but it's the sort of thing where the triune nature of the Godhead is such that a seemingly confusing verse like this actually makes total sense. I, I was at a party not long ago, uh, and I was talking to one curious unbeliever and another nominal Catholic, I'll say, and, and the topic came up of the Trinity. And I was asked to explain it real quick. Sure. Um, and I didn't apologize for the doctrine of the Trinity, but I had to preface the whole discussion by acknowledging that the doctrine of the Trinity is one of the most confusing, hard to understand, and yet important doctrines in the entire Christian faith. Trinity's a word that doesn't appear in Scripture, and the formula that we, we now accept, that we have in the creeds that we recite, they took centuries to perfect that. It's the sort of doctrine that's easy to misunderstand, and it's easy to get wrong, and yet the doctrine is of such critical importance to understanding Scripture that without it, things very quickly become even more confusing and usually quite heretical. Uh, as Christians, we believe that God has been revealed in three persons, and yet we are monotheists. We believe in one God. That sounds self-contradictory at first, but it's the only way to make sense of many passages in Scripture, including verse 28. So, anyway, we immediately see that the church is inherently a, a Trinitarian project. Jesus bought us, we belong to the Father, and the Holy Spirit cares for us. You can't have the church apart from the Trinity. But anyway, that's just kind of a side note in a way. Paul's first actual command in this passage to the elders is to pay attention. It, depending on the translation, it might say beware or take heed or be on guard. And pay attention not only to what you all are doing out there, but to keep a careful eye on yourselves. 
because Paul is under no illusion that holding the office of elder means that we are above criticism or beyond danger. Elders are not a group of guys who have finally arrived because of our holiness. We haven't achieved some great honor so we can rest on our laurels and feel safe now. Uh, Quite to the contrary, once you are an elder, you're in a dangerous place. And if you aren't careful, the church will therefore also be in danger. And Paul's very careful with the order in which he says this. He says, watch yourselves and then watch others. Now, as I said earlier, another name for elder in scripture is overseer. But overseers need to start by overseeing themselves before they can oversee others. You can't shepherd the flock without shepherding yourself. But Paul's quite clear that no elder gets to be an elder purely by happenstance either. These elders didn't get to be elders because they have successful businesses or nice-looking families or because they were Paul's drinking buddies, right? Who made these guys elders, according to Paul? What does he say? You can yell it out. It's okay. Who made these guys elders according to verse 28? The Holy Spirit. Right. And and that's not to say that Paul didn't maybe kind of pick guys out. And maybe these guys were even voted on or nominated by the congregation. But Paul is saying that ultimately the Holy Spirit is the one who makes elders. And why does he do that? Why does the Holy Spirit make elders? Well, verse 28 kind of explains that too at the very end of it. He says, because Jesus... The God-man obtained her with his blood. Paul is reminding the elders right off the bat that Jesus died for these people you're caring for. And if Jesus died for them, you better be darn good and sure that you're taking care of them too. So the elders, they are the Holy Spirit's gift to the church, believe it or not. Uh, Not because elders are special in themselves, but because the church is special. The church is Jesus' precious possession, and precious possessions deserve protection. If you have ever loaned something precious to someone and they later broke it or lost it or gave it away or threw it out or anything like that, then you know exactly what Paul's talking about. I have very few actually precious possessions. I have a small retirement fund and a neglected account that I haven't added to in like a decade. I have a few silver coins. I have like some baseball cards. Nobody collects those. I have some power tools. I have a house and I have two beautiful cars as you've seen. (laughs) Uh, And I have my family too, right? Right, my wife and kids. Uh, There's not too many things on the list that I would be willing to die for except probably my wife and kids on most days. Um, But even without dying for my wife and kids, they are certainly the things I value highest in the world. They are precious to me, uh, and I want to see them protected. Uh, They represent uh, the real truest investment that I have made in this world anyway. I have invested now 16 years of my life in this project, 16 years as of yesterday. Happy anniversary, honey. If I say that from the pulpit, it almost makes up for the no flowers yesterday, right? Um, But if anything poses a threat to my family, I want to see that they're taken care of in my absence, if need be. So, for instance, in a couple weeks, I'm going to be at General Assembly. I'll be in St. Louis. I would trust, like, Phil, right, to keep an eye out for my family. You could take care of that, right, Bunny? Yeah. 
He's in the neighborhood. He would answer a call in an emergency, right? Right? Discipline? Oh, you'll... you'll they need that they need that too oh yeah right but that's a basic summary of the elders job we're like sentinels guarding Jesus's precious treasure until he comes back for it so the job of the elder is not to lord it over the flock God forbid it's primarily to protect the flock because Jesus loved you all enough to die for you you are precious to him And it's our job to protect you and to care for you, as Paul words it. But first, we have to keep ourselves in check before we can protect the flock. Because if you have a security guard and he's asleep all the time, or he gets himself killed, or he's taking bribes, or he's actually working with the criminals, he's not much use as a guard at that point, right? So Paul's opening commandment is to be vigilant on all fronts, and particularly to keep an eye on ourselves first and then all of you to care for the flock, and to do so because it's our calling in the Holy Spirit and because the flock is precious and worth defending. So Paul gives the the sort of job description and also the purpose and motive of the elder in verse 28. And that's great. That's all well and good. But why is Paul so concerned for us to be vigilant? And why now? In other words, what exactly is the nature of the threat? What's about to change? Because it's easy to speak in platitudes about protecting the flock. And and we as elders, I I think we could fall into a trap of of having an inflated view of ourselves. We are the vigilant guardians. And we don't always really consider what we're actually fighting against. Well, Paul addresses that question next. In verse 29 and 30, he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul is worried about wolves. The reason Paul has harped on his own track record is not to glorify himself. He wants these guys to realize that anything less than serious vigilance will lead to the flock and the shepherds being devoured. Lives are at stake. Paul's vigilance has shielded this church for three years, but when he leaves, the wolves will try to move in. Now, we know that wolves are just a symbol. Obviously, I mean, it fits in with the imagery of the church as a flock of sheep. But sheep are vulnerable creatures. It's kind of the point. They're, they're easily killed. They're easily led astray. They're not particularly fast. And the point is that the enemy, represented by the wolves, is very clever. Our enemy is not stupid. He doesn't attack in broad daylight and when everyone is on their guard he attacks when we've been lulled into a false sense of security he attacks the complacent he attacks the ignorant and the lazy and the weak and Paul I think points to his record not to brag but to give these guys a picture of what is necessary to protect the flock from a cagey intelligent enemy Paul's concern for them is rooted in the fact that the flock has enemies, and the enemies, these wolves, ultimately desire the spiritual death of the church, the flock. These are not just mischief makers or practical jokers. These are killers who are on the loose. But perhaps the most important thing I want us to see here is where Paul sees the threat. He says the wolves will come in among the flock. And that even among the elders, twisted men will rise up. 
Tell me something. Does Paul here mention the danger of the pagan culture all around them in Ephesus? I didn't catch it. Does he mention the temple cult of Diana as being their biggest problem? No. Does he say anything about the Roman government? No. Where's the danger? Inside. Paul fully expects the enemy to attack from within. The danger is not out there, but in here. Well, that's pretty unsettling, isn't it? I think if you were to ask a lot of American Christians where they perceive the biggest threats to the church today, I'm fairly certain you couldn't have that conversation without talking about something to do with you know, the federal government, uh, COVID laws, uh, Hollywood, liberals, uh, universities, I don't know. And I'm not even saying these things aren't sometimes a problem, but they are not the biggest threat to the church. Our biggest problem is not external. It's not persecution. The church historically thrives on persecution. That's why Paul isn't afraid of going to Jerusalem. What the church cannot abide is wolves running amok in the congregation, and especially in leadership. The biggest danger facing the church in Ephesus was not the Jews, the pagans, or the secular government, but the threat of wolves sneaking into the ranks. And that means that the elders have got to pay attention. Their job is not to fix the culture around us. Their job is to chase the wolves away, to recognize them through their disguises, and to hunt them out. Now, that's a fine line to walk. Because being a good shepherd means being tough sometimes, and being vigilant and tough can sometimes look like being mean. I don't know how many of you have ever seen the movie Babe. That's a wonderful movie. If you know it, then you know that Babe the pig becomes famous by learning how to herd sheep. Uh, But he comes to be close with all the animals on the farm, especially the female dog who kind of becomes like a second mother to him. But the sheep on the farm hate the dogs and they make no distinction between the master's dogs who are here to herd and protect them really and any other predatory animal what do they call the the the, the dogs wolves wolf and the overall lesson of babe is that dogs should be more polite which is a fine lesson and that's kind of what paul is saying in some ways here the elders do need to be tender with their flock but the sheep still need vigilant protection. The wolves are fierce, which means they don't scare off easily. Now, I was reading up a little bit on wolves, because apparently in Israel, wolves are not pack hunters like they are in colder climates. Uh, So they are all, by definition, lone wolves. So in Paul's imagery, these attacks, they're not going to be obvious, and they're not going to come in a massive, easy-to-define and easy-to-label group. The enemy is very subtle. So the elder must also be cagey, tender, yet vigilant as a hawk. A guard dog, but not just another wolf. Now this is hard, and I think that's why Paul goes back to the example that he set for them. He says in verse 31, Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So again, Paul doesn't mind using himself as an example. 
He's saying this is how it's done. Remember how I did it. This is what it looks like. It means constant care. It comes with 24-7 night and day availability. Your heart needs to be in it. It's going to come with tears. But it also requires toughness. It comes with admonishment. So it's not always tender words. It requires being the bad guy sometimes, at least rhetorically. The call of the elders, if taken seriously, is a very tall order. And speaking for myself, I'm not very often passing the Paul test. I do care for you guys. I do. But I also get frustrated. And I get impatient. And I can be lazy. And I don't always answer the phone. Usually I do, but not always. I do sometimes shed tears, but I am much more likely to shed tears of pity for myself. Um, I haven't always admonished you probably when I should because, honestly, I'm a people pleaser and I don't like confronting problems. In short, it's really hard to imitate Paul to this level. I was lamenting to one of my daughters the other day how many things I feel like I'm juggling. I'm dealing with people's feelings about things, their convictions and their fears, and trying to keep everyone unified when sometimes we're all over the map. And she suddenly just said, being a pastor sounds hard, she said. And it is when you do it my way, because I'm not doing it well. I don't even pastor my family particularly well. I feel like Father's Day so far, even this morning, has been a day for me to reflect on that. But guarding the flock, if necessary, from themselves and even from myself is tricky. And I think Paul realizes that, which is why he follows this command up with this. In verse 32 he says, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So Paul is entrusting the Ephesian church to the elders, but he's entrusting the elders to God. His trust is not in the elders, but in the God who set them apart for this work. And Paul has incredible confidence in God and in his word. And in fact, when you look at it there, he doesn't really separate the two. He doesn't say God is able to build them up, though that would certainly be true to say. He says the word of his grace which is able to build you up. The point is that God's word is an extension of his power. And that's why we take the word so seriously. It's why we read so much scripture during the service. The word of God, God's message to you, has power because God spoke it. Many heresies, most false teachings, really, I think, come about because people devalue God's word. And it happens in a lot of different ways, but it started in the garden when the serpent asked Eve if God really said what he said. But you hear variations on that theme all the time. How can we trust the Bible? It's so old. It was written all by men. It was written in a totally different time and place. Times have changed. We know so much more now than we did then. I mean, are these familiar arguments? You've heard these. But the fundamental question is whether our omnipotent creator God, who is able to make everything, is able to communicate with us, his creatures. Can he do that? Is he able to speak a word to us? As Christians, we affirm that he can and he has, and that is why we stand on scripture alone as the revelation of his will for us. 
And what does God's word have the power to do according to Paul? Paul says it is able to build you up, meaning to edify, strengthen, encourage. It's able to give you an inheritance and to sanctify you. In other words, the word has power to make you strong, make you holy, and bring you to heaven. That's not small potatoes. Fighting off wolves is tricky, but verse 32 is something of a mercy, isn't it? Because Paul is letting the elders know that while their task is very heavy, God and his word have the power to carry them through. Now, finally, Paul gives them some actual concrete examples of what his ministry looked like. He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, I'm going to be honest. That sounds like a strange way to fight wolves. Uh, Paul saying he protected the flock largely by serving and not being a burden. He protected the flock by working hard, providing for himself and for others, and giving the rest away as he was able. And he says he did this to help the weak. Not the poor or the oppressed, the weak. Which in this context, I believe, means the ones that the wolves would try to eat first. If any of you have ever watched any nature shows, some of the best ones are about, you know, the, the giant cats and, you know, the lions, tigers, various things. And, and, and you know how these, these predators work. They're not very picky in a way, are they? Uh, they don't go for the biggest meal. They go for the easiest. They go for the slowest one, the smallest one, the youngest one, the injured one. Even sharks, for instance, they're drawn not only to blood, but also any signs of struggling in water. And I think the enemy works the same way. Wolves don't walk into the church with an eye for attacking the strong. The enemy is just as happy to pick off the weak and the struggling, the ones who are wrestling with doubts and fears and guilt. Paul knows this. He served the flock with his own hands, not because charity is just a nice thing to do, but to encourage those who were despairing and to protect the weak from temptation and to help the poor in spirit to see Jesus through him as he modeled Jesus' words. Spiritual warfare doesn't always look like a battle. It doesn't often involve yelling or condemning people in their ignorance, and it doesn't always mean church discipline. More often, it looks like loving the weak. Singling out the ones who are most likely to drift. Strengthening the ones whose faith is wavering. Serving the ones who are struggling with doubt. That is Paul's call to action. This is not a command to be combative. In the end, what you're looking for as an elder, as you pay attention to yourselves and the flock, is not so much the wolves. Because finding them is tricky. And we should try to hunt them down. But scripture never promised you'd get rid of them all. There will always be wolves. But more importantly, we're called to be on the lookout for the weak. The ones who need building up. The ones who need the power of God and the word of his grace. So for those of you who are among those wrestling with your faith and on the edge of despair, this passage is for you. Your elders, this session is charged with protecting you from the wolves who are nipping at your heels in the best ways that we're able. 
This is so much better than our session minutes. It really is. These are beautiful words from a much better pastor than me. And it's no wonder these guys had a hard time letting go of Paul. Just to round off the trip, it says, And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. It's a very sad farewell, because they're saying goodbye to their spiritual father, I've said goodbye to an earthly father. Many of you have too. This is always hard stuff. But the end of the story is that they're going to be okay. And the whole scene makes me glad that Paul got redirected in Achaia and glad that Luke was here to take notes. Otherwise, we would never have gotten the record of this final session meeting. Now you have Paul finally making his way back to Jerusalem. His mission is drawing to a close, but he leaves behind the word, the spirit, and some elders. And that's enough for the Ephesian church or any church to survive and thrive. And I hope we believe that here at LVPC. And I hope now our session knows what we need to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that your word really is an extension of your power and has the power to lift us up and bring us to the inheritance, Lord, to sanctify us. What a cool thing. Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for this record we have of this this early session meeting of your church, Lord. I thank you for Paul's example, Lord, and for the instruction that he gave, Lord, and I pray that you would help us to apply it, Lord. Lord, help us to be able to detect the wolves that sneak in, but most of all, help us to shield the weak, Lord, even among ourselves on the session, Lord, so that we can also shield the weak among our flock. Help us to love them well. Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.